Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. My guests this morning are James Milan from Chagas, Veronica Malloy from Crossog Preserves, Norma Rowan from Embrace Farm, and Aidan Brennan on Dairy Day, which was on last Thursday. My first guest this morning is James Milan from Chagas, and James is joining us to talk about uh, selective dry cow therapy. Good morning, James, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim, and thanks for having me on your show. Now, selective dry cow therapy is something that was introduced maybe two or three years ago, and it's becoming very popular. So for any of the farmers who uh, don't really understand all about it, James, would you ever uh, give us a rundown on what it means and how effective it can be? So, Jim, I suppose, first of all, the aims of selective dry cow therapy, um, I suppose the main thing with it is we're trying to reduce um, antibiotic resistance. And I suppose the, the way or the means for that is that the less antibiotics we actually use on the farm, that means the bacteria will actually have less of a chance to become resistant to that particular antibiotic. And I suppose what the aim, normally we would have been looking at, when we're looking at um, dry cow therapy on the farm, we would have been using blanket treatment of all cows, whether they had an infection or not. Whereas now with selective dry cow therapy, we're selecting out the cows that have no infections. Those cows are getting a teeth sealer only. And then the cows that have subclinical infections or clinical infections throughout the year, those cows will get a teeth sealer and an antibiotic. Um, I suppose, Jim, just in terms of you know, the herds we're looking at, we're looking at herds that have cell counts less than 200,000. And I suppose also that there's less than 10% of, clin- of cases of clinical mastitis within the herd throughout the year. But I suppose the, the main thing that when we look at, you know, we're looking at really le- high levels of hygiene, healthy practice during the dry during the dry off procedure, but also in the housing period after, immediately after, and the two weeks after drying off, and also coming up to calving, and in the dry cow pens as well, or in the calving pens as well, in the springtime. And how careful ha- have farmers to be with regard to the hygiene? Let's look at it at the first bit of it, at the actual drying off time. Yeah, Jim, so I suppose, first of all, you have to be really surgical. Yeah. So, you know, the, the preparation for drying off cows, often, you know, people, they put a great effort into drying off cows and, um, you know, um, preparing the cow with methylated spirits. But really the preparation starts a couple of, you know, maybe a couple of weeks or a week or two before drying off. And I suppose that starts with clipping cows' tails, keeping them clean inside and in, in, the, in the cow housing and um, facilities. And I suppose, I know you should be clipping tails throughout the year, but definitely pay particular attention coming up to dry off um, time that the cows' tails are clipped. You know, you don't want cows with... Um, you know, tails, mm-hmm. you know, resting inside with long tails resting inside in, uh, in scraper passages. So that's that's probably the first thing. Um, in terms of the drying off procedure itself, the teeth have to be surgically clean. So I suppose what we'll say is, when you're drying off cows, don't dry off large groups of cows. And even in terms of, you know, if you're only drying off 20 cows, for instance, in a day, only dry off four or six, for instance, in a row at any time and then move on then to another four or six again. Don't try and do a full row of 10 or 12 cows. You know, as they get, they do get um, upset, 
to get to get restless when they're in the parlor for that long, and you will have more dunging and you know mm-hmm. you'll have more fecal contamination in that case. So Jim, I suppose just maybe an important thing that when you are selecting out cows, and you know for selective tri cow therapy, it depending on um, the farm itself, they may put you know different criteria, or they may use different criteria to select these cows. But what we normally say is cows with um, an SCC, well, first of all, they have to have three to four microcordings in the year. And at least the last microcording has to be, you know, three to four weeks before the dry-off period, within that period. And, you know, a lot of farmers will select out cows that, you know, their cell count is less than 100,000 on average. And they've had no cell count more than 200,000 in the recordings. Also, that cow can't have had a clinical case of mastitis. And I suppose the other thing we'd say is that you need to take a culture, um, you know, or a sensitivity analysis of a clinical case of mastitis just to make sure you don't have streptococcus agalactia, um, you know, within the herd. If you do, you can practice selective trichotherapy. therapy. So, you know, and again, you could be more, you can be more, you know, risk adverse. You could go cows less than 50,000 or 60,000 and use, like, Spike CPF, use their profiles, um, the exile profiles to, to select out those cows for you for the selective trichotherapy therapy chip. Anybody, uh, James, who's uh, drying off now, I know I know some people dried off uh, earlier in November, they were able maybe to allow the cows to go out onto a paddock after it, but any cows that are now being, you know, treated in, in that particular way, they're going to be housed in. Is that more difficult? Yeah, Jim, so, of course, so after you'll find that Cows that are dried off earlier, they normally go out after after dry the dry cow mm-hmm. therapy. Um, you know, the later the, as you go on through the the drying off period, those cows the weather will get wetter. The cows will, will tend to be housed inside. I suppose the, what we'd recommend is first of all that you have at least a cubicle per cow. You're running the scraper passages, you know, quite often during the day, mm-hmm. and the liming has to be done. So the, the cubicles have to be scraped down twice and line twice during the day. And I just, you know, I've been talking to a few farmers and I think I've one particular farmer who's got very, very low cell counts. He's got a very good dry cow, um, you know, a drying off procedure and management in place on the farm. But he's a little general rule of rule of thumb. I think it's it's worth looking at um, where he uses one ton of line or cubicle um, line for 15 cows within the herd. But... You know, you look at those cows after drying off, the cubicle beds are white. Um, even the diet of the cow, some people will add a bit of hay or straw to the diet at that stage as well, just to keep cows that bit cleaner for that two weeks after drying off the cows as well. And also maybe just help, help to reduce the, the yield or the pressure within the other as well, following the dry-off period, Jim. And would uh, uh, not overfeeding the cow, does that help... Uh, I- the cow in particular, with regard to the drying off period, you mentioned the cow getting too full uh, after being dried out. So if you withdrew some of the food or gave the cow less food, that would take that pressure off, wouldn't it? Yeah, so Jim, what a lot of people will do is they'll reduce back the level of, of, of concentrate for the week prior to drying off. Yeah, That's if you're drying off the whole herd together. It mightn't be as simple if you're picking out cows within the parlour. But following the dry off, dry, following the dry off um, procedure, then 
you know, some farmers, if if they have adequate straw or maybe likes of hay, they'll introduce some more, I suppose, their, their lower quality roughages into the dice just to reduce back, um, you know, to, you're reducing back their, their nutrients, the, the nutrient content, mm-hmm. so therefore you're going to reduce back the, the milk production. But I suppose withholding feed from cows would probably be recommended. But, you know, I suppose you get you could get around that by um, by switching straw, for instance, or, or hay into the dice instead of silage that time of the year. I suppose the other thing with dry enough that you're often dry enough cows, you know, to maintain body condition and to make sure they're calving down mm-hmm. the rice at the right score. So you don't want to restrict them too much either within that dry period. And um, I suppose that's also important as well. But definitely maybe reduce back the nutrient content of the dice uh, through either straw or hay in that first two-week period after drying off, Jim, would be, would be a good recommendation. And how important then, James, the last question on this topic for this morning, how, how important is it to have a very, very good record of what cows got, what treatment? Yeah, Jim, so I suppose, first of all, you'll need to know what cows, um, first of all, got the, got mm-hmm. the antibiotics for the springtime in terms of, you know, so you'll know, you'd be able to make sure that, first of all, you adhere to the, the milk withdrawal um, period for the you know for for your for whatever particular dry cow therapy um or, or dry cow antibiotic you use, but also you want to see how effective the selective dry cow therapy was, um you know as well mm-hmm. for the, for the, how how will it work on your farm, and unless you have those records, you won't know, and I suppose on top of that we'd also recommend that next spring, you do milk recording. You know, within 50 days of the start of calving, or roughly midway through calving, definitely around around Petty's Day, around St Patrick's Day, around that time, and that'll actually give you, that'll actually show you whether or not the, the selective dry cow therapy was actually effective or not on your farm. If it wasn't, it means you need to look at your dry cow therapy procedure, the drying off procedure, or maybe the housing, either after drying off immediately or it's maybe coming up to calving and in the calving pins as well. So records are a key, and I suppose even throughout the year as well, you need to start recording clinical cases of mastitis so that you know come come the drying out period that if a cow has a clinical case of mastitis, that cow is, is treated with an antibiotic. Okay, now you said at the top of the programme that you wanted to mention some dates. I'll mention one. We have the National Dairy Conference in Lyrit House on next Wednesday, is it? Uh, so, yeah, so Jim, that's on 29th, so yes. next Wednesday. And that's the National Dairy Conference, and I think it's well worth a visit. Then on the 30th, on the Thursday, the following day, we're actually, mm. there's actually a, a farm walk um, covering soil water and slurry management on farms. I know we spoke about earlier on on the programme, but we'll cover the new regulations in terms of dairy washing storage. We look at, you know, calibration of slurry spreading equipment and fertiliser spreading equipment. And we'll also have Chagas people and um, representatives from the County Council um, on the day there to talk about water quality as well. OK, where's That's that? T- on the Farm of Aim and Power in Clonwalsh in Clonmel. Okay. And the air code is E91, E379. So it's Eamon Power in Clonwalsh in Clonmel, just outside Paris. 
Okay, thanks very much. Well, look at James, we're out of time, but I want to thank you ever so much for joining us this morning. That listener was James Milan from Chagas. Listeners, my next guest this morning is Norma Rowan. And Norma is one of that great team of Embrace Farm that uh, we hear maybe too much about and maybe not enough about, depending on where you're coming from. But they have an information evening and a suicide uh, prevention type of evening coming up. And it's going to be online and Norma's with me to talk about it. Good morning, Norma, and thanks for joining us. Hello, Jim. It's lovely to uh, be chatting to you again. Uh, good, yeah. Last time we, I met you was at the ploughing, and I didn't recognise yeah. you. That's even worse. Uh, anyway, and of course, I met one of the team in Clare last week when I was down there for that wellness event that they had. So mm. anyway, you have this event coming up, and it's online, so most people can join in on yeah. this particular event. So will you tell me all about it? As many of your listeners will know, and if they don't, um, Embrace Farm is in existence to support uh, farm families following sudden death. Uh, we've been around for about 10 years now. Um, most of that time we have been supporting families following a death in a farm accident. But over the last 18 months, we have expanded our support services to support all types of sudden bereavement within the farm family. And those who survive a serious injury on the farm. Um, I guess most of our listeners would probably have heard in their local communities many stories about people who die, who die by suicide in the farming community. And we've seen that, that our services have expanded to include a lot of those families that are bereaved um, and somebody belonging to them has died by suicide. And like the farm accidents, there there's huge stigma around that and and sense of responsibility and guilt and all of those kind of questions that come up. So Embrace Farm has partnered with another charity by the name of Hug, H-U-G-G. Um, they are a specific suicide charity. So they know about suicide and we know a bit about the aftermath of um, what happens uh, to farm families after a sudden death. So the two of us are coming together next Tuesday evening, uh, the 28th of November, to provide an online information evening about um, coping with uh, a death in your family by suicide. So at that event, we will have a psychotherapist who, who will talk to us about what's normal in grieving um, and what's not normal and, and kind of how that goes, goes through. Uh, and your reactions and, you know, and how different people in the family can react uh, with their grief. Right. Uh, and after that, then, I'll speak on behalf of Embrace Farm around the impacts um, to the farm family and the farm business and the different things that are experienced by families. Uh, and hope then speak about the different services that they provide as well. So it really is a information evening around um, what happens when somebody in your family dies by suicide. Your two organisations now, it's good that you're getting together because you will definitely yeah. complement each other. Yes, absolutely. Um, as they hug, like they, mm. they provide support groups for mm. families bereaved by suicide uh, and ourselves in Embrace Farm. You know, we know about the impacts that happen to families, you know, the legal implications, if there's a will in place, if there's no will in place, what happens to the farm, um, you know, like the legal routes, the 
potential fallouts with, with family maybe or you know having to take over a farm business or you know deciding what to do with that business maybe it's the farmer himself um that has died by suicide and he was going to take that farm over or was running that farm and what happens that now you know and you're mm-hmm. you're trying to deal with all those practices on top of the emotional loss that has just happened in your family so both organizations both embrace farm and hug uh, we were there just to tell people about the services that we provide and the support that we can to farm families and have you any idea uh, of the number of farmers that are farmer fam- members of a farm family uh, that have uh, unfortunately lost their life through suicide over the past 10 years yeah that that's a difficult question to answer right now um mm. but in fairness to minister hayden uh, with responsibility for farmer health and well-being there has been a discussion opened up within the farming sector over the last two years or so around um, that data and those numbers and those figures. If you were to ask me three years ago, all I would have for you is anecdotal stories mm-hmm. that I would hear from farming people. But on Monday, I was at a, a conference held by the Department of Agriculture where there was numerous people uh, from the ag sector and outside of the sector as well, um, different mental health organisations, mm-hmm. Department of Health, the National Office of Suicide Prevention. So there is a lot of work being done in this space to try and determine what those things are. Um, that wasn't being done two or three years ago. But I do know there are some studies out from UCD which, which state that 23% of farmers are at risk of suicide ideation. David Meredith from Tagusk was speaking on Monday and um, he said, yeah, it definitely suicide in the farming sector is higher than other cohorts in the country. But he's seeing some figures at the minute that, that there's more work to be done on. Um, to try and determine what that exactly looks like. But no, there's no nothing concrete that I could say to you right now on that. But the positive, positive thing is people in the sector are looking at it and trying to figure out what those numbers look like. That wasn't the case two or three years ago. OK, well, that's good work that's been done. Can I yeah. just change the subject a little bit now? Because I just want to bring to the attention of my farmer listeners, there's a new regulations with regard to the wearing of helmets on quads. I presume that's very welcome from your point of view. Well, I guess from my point of view is I meet families day in, day out that have died um, in very sudden circumstances on farm. And whether that's as a result of a quad bike or not, the devastation that families go through in trying to cope with that loss on an emotional level is one thing, but on a practical level is another. And if there was anything positive to be brought in to help farmers stay alive, I would welcome that. Right, because it became law during the week that anybody who now sits on a quad has to have a helmet and also which is even probably more importantly if not if not as important and that is that anybody who is already riding quads have to do a one-day course and anybody Mm -hmm. who is new to a quad has to do a two-day course 
So yes, uh, and I understand the, the time that mm -hmm. that will involve for farmers and the cost that that will under, uh, undertake within farming uh, farm families. Uh, and I know that that is something that's not welcome by farmers. But uh, on the other side of it, you know, I've spoken to families whose whose child, whose husband has died as a result of a quad bike accident and to sit with that family and, and see the devastation that has ripped their family apart. If there is something that can be done in any part of the sector that will prevent another child or another farmer from dying in those circumstances, I would welcome that. Yeah, of course, because you're looking at it from this point of view of somebody who has uh, lost their life because of a farm accident and that family has to live out the rest of their lives, which may be uh, years and years. And two days training out of one's life to prevent that happening is time terribly well spent. Well, I think so. And I'm sure the families that have experienced loss like this would think so as well. But I do understand from the farmer's point of view, having to take a day or two off the farm and spend money on a trading course is a difficulty, I guess, when they haven't seen firsthand themselves the devastation that death like this can cause a family. But uh, I would encourage farmers to do what needs to be done to make sure that their life is their life is precious and that they do what needs to be done to come home to their family in the evenings. OK, now let's get back to your event on Tuesday evening. How do people access the webinar on Tuesday evening? OK, well, I guess the best thing would be to have a, a good look at Facebook um, or Embrace Farm Facebook page or the Hug Ireland Facebook page. And that's H-U-G-G Ireland. Uh, look on either of those Facebook pages and you'll see contact details for us and you'll see a link to register for, for the webinar on that. And if that doesn't work, have a look on our website and uh, give us a phone call or drop us an email and we will send you the link. OK, well, look at Norma. Thanks very much for joining us and telling us all about this event on uh, Tuesday evening. And I sincerely hope that a lot of people in Tipperary will join you and find out more about Embrace and more about HUG. That, listeners, was Norma Rowan from Embrace Farm. Listeners, as I said at the beginning of the programme, I will be talking to Aidan Brennan from the Farmer's Journal with regard to Dairy Day, uh, which was held on last Thursday in Parky Cueve. And it's a big event run by the Journal. And uh, it's something that, uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to cover prior to it. But we have arranged that Aidan would talk to me on Friday morning and uh, I had a chat with him, with Aidan on Friday morning and Aidan is now going to tell us how it went. Aidan, good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Aidan, I believe you had over 3,000 people at the event in Parky Cueve. Yeah, Jim, a huge crowd, uh, especially when it was our first time hosting the event in Parky Cueve. Previously, well, pre-COVID, it used to be on in, in Punchestown, so this is the first time we've returned the event and and we've gone to Cork where the most of the cows in the country are so I suppose we followed the dairy farmers for dairy day and look we're very happy with how the event went uh, over 3,000 farmers attended we had over 70 trade stands and we had two stages then that were operating throughout the day with various different talks going on so and they were packed you know in fairness there was fierce interest among farmers to the talks that were being held so we're very happy with how it all went. 
OK, and now let's come into some of the topics on the day. Uh, milk prices could be on the way back to 40 cents. Yeah, so Bernard Condon, who's the the, the um, CEO, I suppose, of, of our new global ingredients. So the people who sell Kerrygold butter and powders and, uh, you know, over half the dairy products produced in Ireland. Bernard said that he expects milk price next year to be in the high 30s or even touching 40 cents a litre on average throughout the year. So that's a good bit higher than where it is at the moment at like 33, 34, 35 cents. So, um, you know, farmers were, I suppose, buoyed by that news. Um, and look, it's reflected in the markets, I suppose. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing that the, on, you know, the, the commodity markets that butter prices have increased substantially. The global dairy trade in New Zealand has increased substantially over the last four or five auctions. So, look, it's it's good news on milk price front anyway. Right. Uh, on the day, did the elections in the Netherlands, which may have an effect on, uh, you know, milk price for... 2024 did that topic come up it didn't really um, yeah. like i suppose you know it, elections can't really dictate market prices no. although you know it's interesting to see what's happening in the netherlands uh regarding um the the, the party that won the most votes but mm. i don't think it's going to have a huge impact really i mean in the long term maybe but not in the short term because long term you know it's policy will determine output of milk in various countries and we're seeing a you know a reduction uh, policy, I suppose, in the Netherlands for the last while. Whether that will change now as a result of this election will be hard to know. Okay. So that was one thing, anyway, and good news for any dairy farmer who wasn't there on the day that mm. milk prices are likely uh, to go as high as 40 cents on average throughout 2024. Uh, Another topic that uh, was discussed on the day, and that is labour on farms and Mm. that farmers shouldn't be cutting uh, back on labour costs. Yeah, Jim. So this was a a session I was chairing um, and we had Colin Donnery from the Farm Relief Services, Niall Murphy, a dairy farmer from the United States, and Paddy Kelly then, who's a consultant based in, uh, well, from Nina originally. Mm -hmm. But I suppose the consensus was that we shouldn't be calling people who work in farms labour units. That was the first thing um, we were scolded for calling them. It's not labour, they're people. So people who work on farms. And I suppose it was in the context of, you know, reducing costs on farms. And labour, you know, employment is obviously a cost on farms. But the feeling was that when uh, it's hard to attract good people onto farms and people in general across the economy are, are hard to get because you know, it's full employment, that um, labour is an area that we shouldn't be cutting costs on uh, because it's seen, it should be seen more as an investment rather than a cost because you're working with people and good people will improve the farm, improve the business, generate more revenue. So that's not actually a cost, it's an investment. Um, and it was, uh, you know, the other topics that were discussed at that session, I suppose, included making sure the structure in the farm is correct. There's good working hours, plenty of time off. People know the roster, so they know when they're on that weekend or if they're off that weekend. Um, and facilities in general for people. You know, in some farms, they need to be improved. And I suppose, you know, we, we went through the characteristics of a good employer, which was, you know, to make sure that people were respected and highly regarded, had good working conditions. Uh, plenty of time off and and I just treated fairly. I think was the general consensus from the from the panel. And is there, um, I, I suppose, a feeling out there that you know working on a farm is a dirty job? It's underpaid, uh, and uh, the hours are long. Is that what is that the feeling that uh, people who 
uh, might consider going in to be, work, uh, be work, a person to work on a farm? Is that one of yeah, the, the, the barriers? There's certainly that, there's certain that perception, and, and yeah. I think that is a barrier. Particularly mm. when, you know, as you say, there's, there's a, you know, full employment el- elsewhere. So there are opportunities in other sectors. So we're competing really as, a, as farming organizations and farming farmers. We're competing against building sites and factories for people who want to work with their hands. And, um, you know, we need to compete with them then. So one of the things we can offer that o- those other sectors can't offer is flexibility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can ask someone to come in and milk the cows. They can go away again at half nine or ten o'clock in the morning and come back again in the evening to milk the cows again. And they'll still do, you know, the main function for that day. Whereas you can't offer that service if you're a builder or you're working on a building site. So that's one of the areas, I suppose, it's improving. I suppose the image of farming is important in that context as well. And we do have plenty of examples of, of farms that are have no, farmers that have no problem in attracting staff because they've got good facilities, they treat people well, and they offer that flexibility. And they're well paid. I mean, the starting salary for anyone working on a farm is, is quite good. It's better than uh, any young teacher starting off or a nurse starting off. So, um, you know, we need to be, I think we should, we should be promoting the benefits of working on farms, working in nature, working with animals, and the flexibility that comes with it. Okay. And what then about the, the, the upskilling of uh, people who are working in farming and working on farms? H- has that come in? Did that come into the conversation? It did. It came in uh, in the context, I suppose, of, of careers mm. and, and course options within within dairy farming. Um, so Chagas have announced a new, um, it's an apprenticeship scheme. Mm-hmm. There's two of them, one for farm managers and one for farm assistants. So now if you if you are someone who's interested in being a farm assistant or indeed a farm manager in a farm, you can do a, a full apprenticeship and get paid while doing it, like you would if you wanted to become an electrician mm-hmm. or a mm-hmm. carpenter. So I think that's a positive. Um, it, it'll help, I suppose, people that are currently working on farms maybe don't have qualifications at least now they can do this course while remaining working on the farm that they're on and get the qualification so at least they have you know they're certified they have a have some sort of a qualification at least um so that's a positive i would say uh, but there's a myriad of course options Jim, in terms of chagas um agricultural colleges the third level institutions and then you've you know the, the universities as well mm-hmm. so there's no shortage of, of course options for anyone who wants to upskill in dairy farming, that's for sure. Okay. And then another thing that caught my eye is that almost 40% increase in consumer trust in dairy farmers. Mm, this was the, the statistic from mm. Zoe Kavanagh, the, yeah. the head of the National Dairy Council. So Zoe was speaking on, on, on one of the panels and she said, you know, it's, it's a real positive sign that consumers are more trusting of dairy farmers and particularly their ability to, um, to produce, you know, healthy food and, and food that's sustainable. So I, I think it's a, it's a reflection maybe of some of the steps that farmers have taken in terms of, you know, using that low emission slurry spreading, the protected urea, increased slurry storage, you know, adhering to the closed periods for spreading slurry all those type of things that improve the environment. I think the public are actually acknowledging that now, certainly based on those results. And um, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's positive. I suppose the NDC are, have, have been promoting dairy farming stronger as well. We've, they've got increased funding through the use of, um, you know, a couple of other co-ops have come on board to offer funding to the, to the NDC. So of course, farmers are paying for all this, but it, it seems to be resonating with the consumer. I think that's a good thing. Okay. Looking back then on the day in general, uh, you know, Aidan, uh, you know, 
would you consider that it was an outstanding success from the journal's point of view? I think so. Look, it was a big team effort from mm-hmm. the Farmers Journal. We organise these events for farmers, like, you know, so, you know, there, there's a lot of work going into it, but uh, the purpose of it is it goes back to our roots as, you know, being owned by the Agricultural Trust. Our profits go back to the industry. This is one of the ways that we do that. We organise events like this so farmers can improve their knowledge. It's an opportunity for the industry as a whole to show their wares, um, you know, and meet farmers with over 70 trade stands in attendance. And they, they, you know, the feedback from those exhibitors was excellent. Uh, And farmers and exhibitors in general were happy with the event. So when they're happy, we're happy. Okay, And uh, you would be confident as a dairy correspondent with the journal that uh, some of the targets that uh, people were forecasting for 2024, uh, they would be uh, achievable. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, certainly in terms of water quality, I mm-hmm. mean, big strides they made in water quality, and that's important regarding the derogation. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions have decreased because our fertilizer use has decreased substantially. So that's a huge bonus there in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and helping us to meet our 2030 targets. So no, I, I, in, in terms of environmental, I, I'd be very confident that we're going to achieve our targets. Um, you know, milk prices, as we mentioned at the start, it, you know, it is forecasted to increase. Um, you know, this year will be a difficult year for dairy farmers profitability-wise. So hopefully next year will be better. But we're dependent on, on costs of inputs falling and milk prices rising for that to happen. OK, well, look, at thank you ever so much, Aidan, for joining us this morning. That listener was Aidan Brennan from the Irish Farmers Journal talking about Dairy Day, which was on last Thursday. Listeners, Christmas is just around the corner. It's only roughly now four weeks away but I've just heard that a Tipperary woman is bringing a bit of Christmas to Cork City. She is Veronica Malloy with her preserves. She's going down and going to take charge of a pop-up shop with her produce for the next four weeks. Veronica it's great to see you. Hi Jim it's lovely to see you too and this is all very exciting indeed because I've never done this kind of retail um, selling before. And um, I'm joining up now with Mark and Jen, my son and his wife, because I'm eventually going to hand over to them at the end of the year. And Jen is a cork woman, and this is how we got involved with cork. And she has offered us this wonderful unit where we're going to have a pop-up shop for six weeks. And we begin on the 26th of the month, which is Friday. And we'll go on through till Christmas Eve, maybe omitting Sundays the first two weeks. But that will be it. And we're taking down all 222 different products. And the shelves are just amazing. Mm -hmm. They're black and gold. And um, you can see all the different things. And we've got lovely gift boxes. And we've got... Um, small things and big things and you can pick and choose what you like. Right, now you forgot to tell us where in Cork this pop-up shop is. Well, that's most important. <laughs> it's in Douglas in Cork. And it's you can see it actually as you go through the tunnel, over the tunnel, you can see it on your left-hand side, the shopping centre there, the yeah. woolen mill ones. Yeah, it's there a long time, that shopping centre. Longer than myself. <laughs> 
And I think long, nearly longer than I am as well, I can assure you. So, you mentioned you're going to have, uh, what, 200 different... 220 different products uh, there. Like what? Now, jams of all sorts. You have the normal everyday ones, like the strawberry and blackcurrant. And then we go off and have strawberry and champagne, cherry and amaretto, and different ones. Blackcurrant and Irish stout, which is really superb. And then we have marmalades of all different descriptions. I do about 20 different varieties of marmalade. And then we have jellies, chutneys, curds. And we got a new curd this year, and it's called a brandy eggnog curd. And it's going down very well with the Americans. They love that. And then we also have um, the relishes and the coolies. And finally, but not least, we have a sugar-free product for anyone who can't take sugar. And they are really lovely. When you taste the marmalade, you think you're having a Seville orange. It's a long way from the first marmalade cooked up in Crossog. It is. It really and truly is. Now, I've been in the business 30 years at the end of this year. Um, it was my mother-in-law that taught me how to begin making marmalades or anything because I hadn't a clue when I began. Give us an idea of the journey, so, from 30 years ago to... Douglas in Cork. It's been a very enjoyable, passionate, long journey in the fact that originally I had to learn about the fruits in Ireland because I was reared in Africa. I had a wonderful mother-in-law, as I said, who taught me how to cook jams and I had six children very quickly so I had to cater for them and work on the farm. So it all knitted in very well and I began cooking for the family and then, as the children grew up, I began doing country markets because they were leaving the nest and I needed to get rid of all my products because I had a huge vegetable garden, which I had to use the products from. And um, I entered some competitions and they won, which was surprising. And then shops asked me to supply them. And slowly but surely it went from there. Now, I know you started in the, in the ordinary kitchen of the old home in Cossog, uh, and, of course, as the business grew, uh, so had the kitchen. Yes, it began in the ordinary kitchen, and then we went down to the basement, and we had to get the health people in to show us how we could use the basement. And then we had a fire in the basement, and we had to move out. And I'll never forget it. I was thinking, well, I'll give up. But I had a wonderful team. And they were around the next day saying, how can we help you? How can we get this on its legs again? And so I, we had moved up on top of the farm, my husband and I. We'd left the main mm -hmm. house to my son. Mm -hmm. And we had a double garage. And I got an HSE person to come and show me that I could do it. And so we began up on top of the farm in a double garage. And we bought in different containers to store the products. And listeners, if you were on top of the farm, you'd have a most wonderful view of the mountains of Tipperary as you look towards the Galaxies, the Cormorans and the Knockmill Downs. And you can even see Cashel from where we are. And we've, we've got a little Christmas shop that will actually be up next to the jam factory. So anybody who wants to call in, they can come and see what we have and see how it's being made. Okay, and of course, another thing that you and I are synonymous with, and that is going to bloom. Absolutely, bloom. 
I'm very sad. I missed it this last year, but I've been doing it ever since it began. And it's been a wonderful experience. And I must say, board beer do a wonderful job. You're going down to Cork, but all these lovely uh, preserves and jams, marmalades, uh, uh, chutneys, they're also available in Tipperary during this Christmas period. Absolutely. They're in the local shops. They, um, they're going to be, as I say, in Crozogue. Mm. And they're all made in small batches. I must say this, we only make 20 jars at a go, the old-fashioned way, so you get that unique flavour. Right. Now, if somebody wants to go to Cosogue, to the little shop, Christmas shop in Cosogue, uh, do you have off the top of your tongue uh, your air code? I am going to bow my head in shame and say I'm very bad at carrying figures in my head, and especially asked on the spur of the moment. But if you look up Cosogue, it does show it, and also we've got a well signpost once you come down the avenue. You say you're handing over at the end of the year to other members of the family. Yes, I feel that, as it's called Crozogue, mm-hmm. and I feel that I've done a good 30 years, and I feel the younger people have good ideas, and you've got to let the young take it. And I'll be there in the background and I'll be one of the team if they want me. But really, they've got to take it to the dizzier heights and they've got their online. We've got a shop online and all this kind of thing, which I can do, but I wouldn't be the best at. And let the young do it. And I've, they've got a great thing. They can knit it with Crossover Equestrian. And eventually we're going to have a visitor centre down there. And it's going to work like that along the road. Yeah. Will you be able to stand back? We'll have to see, we'll have to see, but I'll always be, you know, available if they want my help. Yeah, because it's very difficult to stand back from something you've worked with for the last 30 years and probably were thinking about it for the five years before that. Well, all I can say is watch this space, so will I. (laughs) (laughs) So once more before uh, I let you go, and I want to thank you ever so much for making me aware that this was happening down in County Cork. Uh, so will you tell uh, the listeners where they can get Cosoke uh, preserves and jams and chutneys uh, for Christmas presents for their friends or family? They can go, you mean locally? Yeah. Well, first of all, we're nationwide, yeah. but locally we're in Relish, we're in Harvey's, we're in Campions. I'm sure we're in other places that I can't think of off the top of my head. Oh, and we're in Tipperary. Town, we're in Cashel, we're, okay. we're, we're literally all over the county. Okay, so that's Tipperary. And then for people in Cork who are listening to us this morning, where can they meet you? They can meet me in the shopping centre and also Routy Foods do a good display. And so I'm very much there in Cork as well. Okay, so they can meet you in the Douglas Shopping Centre uh, for the next five or six weeks. And, uh, as you said, you're also elsewhere in Cork. Yes, yes, very much so. So, look, thanks very much for dropping in and sharing all that with us here on Tip FM. That listener was Veronica Malloy telling us what's happening with Cusog Preserves between now and Christmas Day. Thank you very much, Jim, and a very happy Christmas to you and everybody and my team. And to you too, Veronica. Thank you. Before I sign off, just to remind you listeners, anybody particularly in uh, the Mid-Tipperary area that 
uh, on tomorrow, starting at 2 o'clock, we have the sale of work in Holy Cross Village. Uh, and uh, if you want something to do tomorrow afternoon, why not uh, drop out to Holy Cross and uh, maybe you will pick up a bargain. That, listeners, is AgriPort for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me at the same time next week. Coming up next is the news at 10 o'clock. And after that, Eamon DeWire presents Down Your Way.